Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. You know, every time I say that, it's um, it's a mouthful and somehow I get to the end and I wonder how the heck did I say all those words without stumbling over it. Um, today especially, because I'm a little tired. Uh, yeah, so today is, is Literature Wednesday. We got a ton of stuff. I say that too at the beginning of like every episode. I need to come up with new words to use, Jake. That's what I need to spend my next show prep time doing is coming up with new words to say for these sorts of intros. Um, But Literature Wednesday means uh, it's one to two months. We spend one to two months going through a piece of what we call principled literature. And we called it that um, to kind of convey a couple different things. First of all, literature is kind of a wide variety of things. So it could be, for instance, like Beowulf, which is like a, a long, a lengthy poem. Um, it could be stories. It could be, so we, we didn't, we wanted to keep that fairly open-ended in terms of what we might want to read on the show. It's not always just going to be theological mm-hmm. kinds of books, right? Theology heavy books. Um, so that's the principle. That's the literature side of the principled literature phrase. And then principled is we wanted to coincide with, uh, the principles that we believe um, and we hold to, and that's kind of what we what we read is is books that um, convey those same principles. So, on our Friday show, actually, uh, I didn't even mean to do this, but <laughs> this is a good way to like introduce what we're going to be talking about on Friday. Uh, a little bit of a sneak peek. We're going to be talking about why we believe what we believe on this show, what this show is really all about, what some of our core principles are. And talking about a lot of that kind of stuff, so that's going to be our Friday episode. So I, well, I was kind go. of thinking that that's what you were doing is setting up for that. I, I was going to yeah. say if you weren't going to say anything, I was going to say, well, Bushio <laughs> is trying to set it up, setting up for the uh, for the right. Friday episode, which we're going to be talking yeah. about. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so there's that. Great minds think alike. So thanks for all being ready to cover that. <laughs> um, so literature Wednesday this Wednesday is uh, chapter four of the book we started at the beginning of this month, which is Angels in the Architecture by Douglas Wilson and Douglas Jones. So there is, um, there are a lot of different topics within this, within this book. I think it, it could be fit under the umbrella of medieval Protestantism and the benefits of medieval Protestant Protestantism versus our uh, modern uh, Christianity, a modern flavor of Christianity that's distorted and then distorted by modernity. Um, and we've compromised because we've lost sight of the battle that we're engaged in. And so that specifically is what we are honing in on today. And by we, I mean, Douglas Wilson and Douglas Jones, <laughs> we're just uh, mimicking what they have here and relaying small snippets of that information to you. Um, but we're talking about the the divide, the divide between the, um, the 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 serpent and the one who would crush his head and did crush his head. So that is, uh, yeah, that's that's what we're chatting about today. And in typical Doug Wilson fashion, and it's tough to, I mean, sometimes it's tough to tell um, what parts of this book are written by which Douglas, whether it's Jones or Wilson. And uh, but but in typical Douglas Wilson fashion, large sections of this chapter are very allegorical. They paint these mm. vivid images. Um, 
that Doug Wilson is just he's known uh, very well for for painting. Um, so you probably pick up on a lot of those themes, uh, stating that that confrontation, that battle in ways that are not boring, <laughs> fresh ways. Um, and as it turns out, ways that the medieval Protestants actually phrased it as well. So, all right. So before we get into all of that, though, um, we have to talk about our verse of the week. And Wednesday means that Jacob does that. And hey, Jake gets to talk about the verse that he picked. So I'm excited for this. Take it away, dude. Yeah. Now, this is this is a really fun one, especially because it, uh, I guess, <laughs> fun. one could you say... You would call a verse about judgment fun. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it hits close to home in a sense of my job and what I do. Um, mm. But I will explain that as soon as I go through the verse. And our verse this week is Isaiah 1, verses 21 through 23. And it says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companies of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And again, that is Isaiah 1, verses 21 through 23. And this is a verse full of judgments, multiple different judgments on a nation. But among these judgments, um, which God brings upon a corrupt nation, uh, there is one that stands out to me, uh, especially... Uh, because it says about, because it talks about the watering down of wine. And to me, this, this connects with me because I am in the culinary industry um, and talking about the dilution of consumable products um, and especially them being a judgment on a nation that we have such, I think one example I could bring up is you think of a, a bag of potato chips, okay? Notice um, over the years, the air has become more in a potato chip <laughs> bag. How this bag that used to be filled three quarters of the way with chips is now only filled halfway of chips. And of course, the company gives multiple reasons for doing so. One of them being, oh, well, it helps it pack in when it's packaged if it's being bumped around, it's not going to break up all the chips. There are multiple reasons that they could give, but I would say it's because of a ju the judgment that is upon our nation. Um, and really, I think we should really be thinking about this in the sense of God takes food seriously, as I talked about on Monday. And as a nation, we have really undervalued food. Um, a chef that I've worked with was talking about this this sort of fact and saying that in Rome, there was in the city of Rome, I don't know how long ago this was, but there was a period in time in which everyone woke up at five o'clock in the morning to go to the bakery, pick up a fresh piece of bread, then went to farmer's markets, picked up the fresh produce that they could get that day to make a meal for that day. They're, the first thing they did in the morning when they woke up was focus on food, was focus on what are they going to eat that night. All right, you could claim, okay, now they've made that 
that's now the the key thing in their culture is food. You know, okay. But I think we should have a sense of food being of importance. Why has God given us all these different and lush plants or 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 different exotic animals or different um fruits and stuff that we can find uh why was there a need to create a fruit called a dragon fruit i don't know if anybody's seen a dragon fruit but a dragon fruit literally is this red fruit that has these like almost like waves coming from it they almost look like spikes but they're not spiky it's like it's almost like leaves are coming off of it and you open it up and the flesh on the inside is smooth it's almost like butter that you spread. Um, almost like I don't, I don't think it's exactly like that. It it could be more of like a foam in a sense, but it, it's soft. I know it is soft. Um, so again, why do we have all these things if God didn't see, didn't want us to use the beauty in food and focus on food and use food in a nice way? Um, so kind of, kind yeah. of similar to my rant on Monday. Yeah, no, that's, but, that's um, really interesting. I, it's cool that you chose that part of the verse to highlight. I think, um, we talked about this, this same verse on the show last year, but it was in the context of Gary Dumar's book, the God and government series we went through and he brought it up. He was talking about that devaluing of currency, you know, your silver yeah. has become dross. Um, and then we, that next part we take in a different way. So I'm, I really appreciated that that perspective on it. Um, it's fascinating to me uh, learning all the different perspectives people can get, um, different conclusions people can draw from the same verb. passage. Yeah. yeah, and what's what's great is when we're unified unified in vision, but then uh, we individually pull out different parts of the verse and see it towards the same vision, but in a slightly different way. Which reminds me of how we work for the kingdom. Right. Like we're all working together for the same thing, but we all have unique ways of doing that work. So and, yes. and the interesting thing is that this verse, in a sense, is well, especially the way that I take it, talks about kingdom work in that sense, because mm. a nation under judgment, we're supposed to fix. We're supposed to help a nation under judgment right. and get it out of that judgment. The judge. Yeah. God doesn't say the judgment is where we're supposed to stay. Right. It's the judgment we're right. supposed to bring ourselves out of. And yeah. in this sense, talking about watering down of the wine, we're not supposed to water down the wine. We're supposed to have rich, perfect wine mm-hmm. with no with yeah. no water or impurities in it. Yep. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah. So on that same, by that same token, what's really cool is that what you're describing there about a nation under judgment, all the things that fall on that nation because they're not following God because they aren't structuring their society properly. They're uh, following idols, worshiping idols. They're not living the way that God has called them to live. And they're bringing harm to themselves in the process. We can look at that and be completely engulfed by that feeling of, man, look at how many millions of people there are. Let's take America, for example. We used to be in the minority or I'm sorry, the majority, as uh, as Christians. Christians were the majority. Christians founded this nation. The reason America exists is because of post-millennial Christians, right? Mm-hmm. But, but 
now, obviously, I, I don't think we can really say we're in the majority anymore, at least not the same caliber of Christians that founded this nation. We've, we've diluted our theology. We allowed dispensationalism to creep in. We allowed Arminianism to creep in. We allowed premillennialism to creep in. We allowed all of these things to undermine our strength, undermine our faith. And that's just within the Christian community. Now, the community at large in America is greatly diminished in terms of the Christian population. So we can look at all of that and feel a sense of dread. We can look outside and look at everything the civil government is doing, like building roads, like the, the loss of beauty in our culture. We can look at all of this and think that, that Christian, building a Christian culture is impossible. It can't possibly happen. Um, but, but what's interesting to me, one of the most comforting things in this chapter was that we aren't the first people to do this. If we were to build a Christian culture, again, if we were to revive, uh, have a true revival, not the Asbury one, have a true revival in this country, and it were to turn back to Christ, it wouldn't be the first time that's happened. And it won't be the last. Uh, page 47, the book said, the medieval attitude toward the truth of Christianity is a delight to behold. They lived it and breathed it. It was taken for granted by commoners and intellectual elites alike. Christianity was such comfortable, common furniture that its opponents looked clearly artificial. Even the unfaithful recognized that they lived in a world under the lordship of Christ, end quote. And so every time someone brings up the verse that says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, again, in the same way that we were talking about, hey, you saw, you took a different thing from this verse than I did, which is a different thing than Gary DeMar did, which is a different thing than, you know, but we're all driving towards the same vision. Well, the other side does it too, right? Other people can take this verse as well. And some people will say every knee will bow. Yes. When Christ comes back. Right. Um, but we would disagree. We would say, no, no, Christ comes back after every knee is bowed, after yeah. he's done what his gospel, uh, the gospel of the kingdom is doing, which is conquering all enemies on this earth. And then he comes back and the last enemy to be defeated is death, as the scriptures plainly tell us. So this has happened before, though, to a large extent. Now, now here, here's the thing we, we can't lose is that that shouldn't depress us. We shouldn't then say, oh my goodness, you're right, this has happened before and we lost it, look at this. Oh, this just goes to show you that any good we have in this world, we're just gonna lose. It's like, no, Christ, like, God gave us, I'm sorry, I can get very energetic on this topic. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've debated so many people over the last several months and years on this topic. Um, God has given us so many historical examples of failure. Why did he give us those so that we could mull in that failure? So we could just sit there and wallow in self-pity? No, it's so we avoid those failures. It's so we learn and grow. Why did things like the Westminster Confession, why were they developed? Why was the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed developed? Why did John Calvin write a massive, massive set of books? I think it, I, to my, um, my grandfather on well our grandfather on my on our mom's side had a, a collection of all of calvin's commentaries 
massive collection. It filled up like two massive cardboard boxes. Why did people like that over the last millennia write all of those things, those standards? It's so we can build on them, so we can grow. There's hope for the future. Um, no, Bruce, it's only so we can go in our personal walk. <laughs> yeah, it's personal sanctification. All we're doing is yeah. inviting people to heaven. That's all we're doing. We're not we're actually... introducing people to Jason. Yeah. That's John Brennan. That is joke. Yeah, I know every. I know all the hairs in your head, but I'm not great with names. Yeah, that was yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I could rant for hours, but I'm gonna pass it to Jake because he he actually you you like texted me. You're like, this chapter is so cool, <laughs> and you're like, I got a little carried away, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah. welcome to the club. <laughs> um, so. Take it away. Well, I would like to start out letting you know what my headline or my 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 uh, oldened statement is for this entire section. Um, and that is, Christians are embarrassed. To which you should ask the question, oh, well, how? How so? What do you mean? Well, I shall answer that with a quote on page 48. Uh... The book says, consider how agitated we get in our rush to assure our enlightened lords that scriptural faith endorses nothing so obviously embarrassing and unmodern and wicked as excommunication, the death penalty, patriarchalism, slavery, a young earth, and monarchy, or that scripture condemns sodomy, public schools, recycling, or whatever else might make moderns shake their fingers at us. Basically, what uh, what is being said here is that us Christians are trying to bow down to the scientific gods, to scientism, and let every every scientist know. No, no, no. The Bible the Bible comports with uh, science. Don't worry it. it that science agrees, uh, the Bible agrees with science. Right. It'll make sense. It makes sense. We always try and go to that and yeah. say, because, because they're the standard, apparently. Exactly. Because science is the standard. We're considering mm-hmm. science, or, or even so, he, he brought, brings up the Enlightenment uh, and our, the Enlightenment lords. Um, <laughs> but I'll keep moving on because I know I, I want to get through this quickly and I have a good bit. And I know Bruce has a bunch of stuff. But I'm my next be quote... skipping a ton of quotes in this episode. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, again, a lot of these are from page 48. Um, a lot of my quotes come from two pages, but there is so much there. I, I wish I wish I could have just said to everybody, hey, just go to the book, go look at the book. Uh, but I had to bring them up. I'm sorry, everybody. I, I had to bring them up. Uh, but good. Yeah, yeah. This next one, again on page 48, it says, But the important test question here isn't whether Christianity teaches egalitarianism or an old earth, but what if it clearly didn't? And I'll continue on to my next quote to kind of explain this. The next quote, again on page 48, says, Think of the most horrible moral or scientific accusation raised against the Christian faith, and then ask, what if it's true? 
Would we be embarrassed to stand by Christ? The Bible is true whether we agree with it or not. If the Bible said racism or slavery was at all times good, would we have a problem with it? Now, obviously, I'm not saying that that's what the Bible claims. Um, the Bible does not claim those things. But the question has to be raised, are we going to stand with Christ or are we against him? Are we with whatever Christ says in the Bible? Are we going to agree with the Bible? Or are we going to stand against it? Because it doesn't match with the scientific lords. Uh, to which in the book brings up Romans 3, 4, which says, let God be true. And every, but every man, a liar, hmm. which leads me into my next section. And this should set Bruce, Bruce up perfectly for his section. Uh, this section is war is all around us. Um, and I'll start out with a quote from page 49, which says, if we aren't in the midst of war, then any talk of enemies, sub, subversion, and, and subversion sounds rather silly and paranoid, end quote. The Bible has extensive amounts of, of war language or warlike language. And I think the point here is that if the Bible speaks of war so much, but our modern Christian idea is peace and love with all, even the enemies of Christ, then the Bible sounds silly for drawing battle lines hmm. in this yeah. case. Yeah, However, or might I add that it sounds silly if we think we're going to lose this battle. Yeah. It yeah. sounds silly if we are at all claiming that we could be victorious on this earth and win this battle Yeah, before Christ comes back. Mm -hmm. It sounds utterly insane to our modern evangelical ears to say the gospel of the kingdom is going to conquer every single one of Christ's enemies here on this earth and the will of God will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. That sounds ridiculous unless yeah. we have an understanding um, that comports with the rest of those passages that, that talks about that, that idea of war. Yeah. yeah. And you know, to which I would respond to that type of person by saying, let God be true and every man else, every man else a liar. Yep. Um, the Bible is not wrong in its word choices in choosing to depict this warlike language, but instead completely correct in our vision of the world around us is wrong. Not only do we have a war with personal sin, but we have a very physical war with the, with the demonic powers of this, of this earth. Uh, I bring up Ephesians 6, 12, which I won't go into, but it speaks of a war is not with flesh. A war is against um, powers and principalities mm. and the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is speaking about the powers, these, these demonic powers that are in control right now. That's our war. That's what we're against. Uh, page 49. I'll continue. Page 49, the book says, We agree with our contemporaries that we are all at peace, working toward the same pleasant neighborhood goals, when in fact we stand stupidly in the middle of a total war, assuming we're an at a banquet. And I'll continue. 
more more on page 49. This is a separate quote, but uh, I think it fits in well connected with this other one. It makes more sense when it's connected with the previous one. Uh, again, on page 49, it says, this war was divinely imposed. And he then he quotes Genesis 3.15, which says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy heel and thou shalt bruise his heel. End quote. This, uh, and then it continues in the book saying, this war is not an option we can make disappear by visualizing a world of peace. Christ alone can usher in peace. Hmm. End quote. There, so much today we, we say that um, God only wants love and love and peace and all of these things being focused. Yes, that is true. Those are a part of God's character. But justice and truth are also part of his character. And, and his law, right? And that fits in with justice. These people are enemies of Christ. As, as he says, if you are not with him, then you are against him. If you are not following God's law, law then you are breaking it in an enemy of Christ. To which we are his soldiers going out and bringing the world back from disobeying. That is that is my final quote, and I shall hand it back. To yeah, you. I I really like this quote from um, page fifty three that says a thousand years from now, better Christians will see our blind compromises with unbelief, if our century is remembered at all, which I doubt, and they'll be right. It would be nice to escape modernism wholly, but no one can see his own blind spots. We need to extend some courtesy to the medievals, for they did much better than we do in understanding the divide between Christian and non-Christian thought, end quote. And the reason that we compromise on so many things, the reason that we, uh, for instance, send our children to the government schools or take government money, or even uh, allow uh, our churches to compromise in their architecture, how they build churches. Well, it doesn't really need to be beautiful. It just needs to be something that'll keep the rain off of our heads. It's like, no, strive for better, strive for more, strive to be the best in this world to the glory of God so that people do a double take and say, wow, there's something different about them. But mm -hmm. we compromise because we forget we're at war. We don't care about these things because we think this entire earth is going to get burned up in, in fire someday. We've given up and we've compromised on so much because we forget that we are in a battle and the king of the universe is on our side. And oh, by the way, the war was already fought on the cross and he won. We are in the mopping up exercises, as Doug Wilson likes to say. We're in the final battles here. The final skirmishes are occurring today. And we're already promised victory. But we don't act like it. We don't live that way. Um, I'll move right down to, I want to talk about the ironic pendulum swing of modern Gnostic Christianity, because I think this is a really good time to, to bring that up. 
our modern flavor of Christianity has watered down the Bible to the point of near Gnosticism. I mean, if you study what the Gnostics believed, we're coming dangerously close to that in modern evangelical Christianity, or uh, dispensational theology. The ridiculous thing is that if the medieval Christians could see us today, they'd laugh in our faces. They fought the exact opposite battle in their day against Gnostic belief that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is all that's good and pure. They fought hard against that philosophy. Um, you can read so, so much more about that in, in this chapter, chapter four of Angels and the Architecture. Um, quick quote from page 54. Uh, the book said, the history of philosophy forms a watershed at the high and late Middle Ages, and the division between these two periods is all the doing of Christians, end quote. And for more information on that, go to page 54 in the book and check that out. This is an, yet another example. We look at art, we look at music, we look at um, history itself, science, almost every field imaginable. And Christians were the pioneers. Christians were the ones who improved it. Christians were the ones driving it. Philosophy is no different. Um, and what's interesting, though, is uh, page 55, the book said various social pressures took over and the distinctively Christian concern with knowing concrete things was secularized into an exaggerated nominalistic concern uh, with particulars. And the myths of modernity undid the wonderful medieval Christian triumph, end quote. So we shifted. We lost. We let the enemy take the ground of this earth. We said, you know what? Satan is the god of this world. He can have it all, which is utterly insane, utter and complete insanity. When we truly understand what the entire, you know, we all the time talk about in church. This is just a common phrase. The Old Testament pointed towards Christ. But what does that mean? We, when we don't understand the Old Testament and its entirety, when we don't understand what all of those signs and symbols meant in that culture, we don't understand the way it was called the way it was the way that people structured literally their entire lives, what they did throughout their day. Every part of it was done according to the Torah, done according to Jewish laws and customs dictated by God, right? Or then they started to add to it and twist it. But it started out as every part of their life, when you rise up, when you walk, when you stand by the way, when you're doing everything, right? When you lie down, all of it was done. And all of that pointed towards Christ. And so when people saw that fulfillment, they said, aha, when they saw what he did on the cross, they said, aha, when they saw him rise again, they said, oh, wow, aha, this is, this is it. They understood the fulfillment. They understood this meant victory. They had the same vision that Joshua did and, and all the people that took victory over those lands because God was behind them and they succeeded. They had the vision that Solomon and David had. They had the vision that all of the kings, uh, the good and bad, that the judges had. They were taking dominion over this earth and they knew they would succeed. They knew they wouldn't fail. And even more so, the New Testament had that, and then they had Christ, and then they saw the fulfillment of all of that magnificent history in Christ, and they knew we won't fail. They can kill us, 
They can, they can take the body, but they won't take the soul. And the gospel of the kingdom will spread through this entire world and it won't fail. And so we lost that. Now we're basically Gnostics. That's what's so frustrating about the modern evangelical church. We're squishy. We're effeminate. We have no strength because we gave up on the future. We gave up on the eschatos. We gave up on the last days. We gave up on the future and we said, no, nope, the devil can take that. I don't care. Christ has to come back first before all that can happen, which the Bible doesn't talk about. That's why we are in so rough of a condition today. That's why America is crumbling because it was founded on the strong, firm foundation of a post-millennial worldview that we were going to be victorious here on earth as it is in heaven. And we've said, nope, we're going to distort that, twist it and say, no, Christ will fail here on earth. His gospel won't succeed. The devil will. And then Christ will come back and burn it all. And then we'll start over, which is insanity. With that, um, we're a bit over time, but that's okay. Jake, if you have any final thoughts you'd like to add before we wrap up, a final quote or anything you'd like to leave us with, that would be awesome. Maybe on a lesser um, note. Well, <laughs> I was... mean, I mean, okay. Going, I guess going back to the beginning and, and saying after all of this doom and gloom, in a sense, um, we can speak to... Well then, how do we get out of this? How do how do yes. we change this? How do we fix this? Do it. Um, we fix this by in everything that we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Mm. We, yeah. we go back and we claim Christianity in all that we do. We confess Christianity in all that we do. That includes our work. And thinking about it, and again, go, like I said, going back to the very beginning where I was talking about the verse. The reason I bring up that verse in this sense is because it's talking about my job specifically culinary in a sense that we shouldn't be doing this that the judgment is watering down the wine and that we shouldn't be doing this and it's showing us what we should be doing in a sense by showing us what we shouldn't be doing yeah we can't be creating food that is meant only i guess to say right we shouldn't be creating food that's only based on it being inexpensive. Obviously, we can't create very expensive foods because our culture can't pay for it because of all these other curses and judgments that are on our nation. Um, our silver is mixed with dross. Our, our currency is devalued. We can't pay for this kind of stuff anymore. But at least trying to bring our culture back to a biblical idea of food or a biblical idea of whatever job you're in. Now, yes, you have to take some time and take some brain power and think about how to make your job as Christian as possible or how God intended you to work in the field that you're in. And it doesn't matter what field that is. Every yep. field can be Christianized can be redeemed in a sense yep awesome thanks for that reminder and with that don't forget send us an email trdshow at protemnow.com we want to hear your thoughts on what we talked about today please please like this video share it with all your friends we would appreciate that oh so much and 
We will see you on Friday where we have a quick discussion on uh, what this show stands for and what do we stand for and what are the principles that uh, drive this show forward. We'll see you then. And remember, everyone, in all that we do, do it as unto the Lord. <laughs>